So we're in our summer series called the Summer in Psalms, and we are just reminding ourselves that the Psalms are, are songs, and they're also poetry, but the Psalms are also prayer. Uh, if the Psalms teach us anything, it's that they teach us how to pray and what it looks like to be a, a community of prayer and a people of prayer. Uh, there's a story in Jonah too, where he's, he ends up in the belly uh, of the fish and he has this prayer uh, and you can read it for yourself. But every word in this prayer is taken directly word for word from the Psalms. That in times of distress and crisis and, and disorientation, uh, are when our words often fail us, having a familiarity with the Psalms gives us language for prayer. And these prayers that we see in the Psalms, they're not one-dimensional. Uh, each Psalm offers us a different set of emotions, a different context, a different avenue for prayer. Walter Brueggemann, who is an Old Testament theologian and author, he offers us uh, three types of psalms. And he says there are psalms of orientation, which is when the psalm calls us to look at the character of God and orient our lives around it. There are often psalms of praise. Uh, praise be to God. Um, psalms of thanksgiving. And then there are psalms of disorientation. And these are psalms that stem out of injustice and lament or when life doesn't make sense. And, and we're disoriented and wondering what to do with it. And the psalmist gives those words, gives, offers us, us those prayers. And then there are psalms of new orientation. And these are psalms that move us from disorientation toward a new reality, a pathway forward. Psalm 30 is a good example of, of when God changes our, my mourning into dancing. There's movement from mourning, disorientation, to dancing, a new orientation. It's dynamic. And our psalm today is, uh, is from the lectionary readings, and it's a psalm of new orientation. So let's hear this, this poetry, this song, and this prayer of Psalm 85. Lord, you showed favor to your land. You restored the fortunes of Jacob. You forgave your people's guilt. You covered all their sin. Selah. You withdrew all your fury you turned from your burning anger. Return to us, God of our salvation, and abandon your displeasure with us. Will you be angry with us forever? Will you prolong your anger for all generations? Will you not revive us again so that your people may rejoice in you? Show us your faithful love, Lord, and give us your salvation. I will listen to what God will say. Surely the Lord will declare peace to his people, his faithful ones, and not let them go back to foolish ways. His salvation is very near those who fear him, so that glory may dwell in our land. Faithful love and truth will join together. Righteousness and peace will embrace. Truth will spring up from the earth and righteousness will look down from heaven. Also, the Lord will provide what is good and our land will yield its crops. Righteousness will go before him to prepare the way for his steps. So this is a psalm of new orientation, meaning there's movement from, from one orientation, an old orientation, to a new one. And Psalm 80, 85 kind of breaks down like this. Verses 1 to 3 are looking back at the past. Verses 4 to 9 are present looking in the moment. And verses 10 to 13 are future orient, uh, of a future orientation of looking at, at what could be, at possibility, dreaming, imagining, uh, the possibility that lies before us as we, um, as we move toward 
this picture of God's goodness that we see here in these last verses. So the context, because this is, this is looking back at a particular time and it's set in a present moment. So what is the context that we see? Um, in the timeline of scripture, uh, this would be set in the transition out of exile. So we would have had the city of Jerusalem, which is sacked by the Babylonians and the people are taken into Babylonian captivity, into exile. And in, it's, in, it's in the exile and in this captivity that we would see the stories of Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, this famous story of the people as they tried to resist the assimilated strategy of the Babylonians that will just make our, our captives like us. They'll just blend into our society. And, uh, and Daniel and his friends tried to resist that and be set apart and be different. And eventually the Persians overtake the Babylonians and it's under the rule of Cyrus of Persia that these Jewish people are permitted to go home, uh, to return home. But this comes in waves. We, we actually see a couple waves. The first wave is that the people, uh, a group of people go back to rebuild uh, the temple. This is the story of Ezra. And they return to the ruins of Jerusalem. It's destroyed to rebuild the temple compound, to rebuild, uh, to, to start the rebuilding of the temple, which takes years and years. The second wave of people that go back uh, are those found in the story of Nehemiah. And they're going to go back and rebuild the broken city walls. And city walls were so vital uh, for the rebuilding effort uh, of the city proper because while they were rebuilding the city walls, while they were rebuilding the temple, they still had enemies. They still had uh, those around them that wanted them to fail. And so the walls would protect them. And then the third wave would be the return home of the people in general after the city was uh, the city walls were rebuilt. And so the psalm psalm 85 is is written during that process. Uh, it's it's in the midst of this transition from captivity and exile to returning home and all of the transitional process that's happening. It's underway. It's 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 certainly happening but it's not complete. And so it's fitting for us as we are in the midst of transition, as transition is underway and yet certainly not complete. So let's walk through this uh, psalm together. Verses 1 and 2. Uh, when we start into the psalm, we are met with language, which, which tells us something. It cues us to the meaning of the psalm. It tells us something about the psalm, that it's a, a psalm about a covenant. Uh, the God who honors the covenant and the people who break the covenant. Faithful love language uh, often brings up that, that reminder of, of the covenant. We, we might think that there's only two parties in this covenant. But as far back as the first covenant with Abraham, we see that this covenantal relationship actually has three parties, God, people, and land. God, people, land working in harmony with each other. And when all three of these are working in harmony, we have shalom, this comprehensive idea of peace that we see in scripture. Within uh, the first three verses, we're met with, after verses one and two, we're met with this Selah. And it's a weird uh, place for it because we would kind of see the three sentences working together, these, these three, these, this triplet of ideas, and yet it's broken up by a Selah. E each of these triplets is telling of God's faithfulness uh, amidst their own failure. It's telling the story of their homecoming, both into Jerusalem, but also into this new, uh, this new covenant relationship with God. Uh, within the, the story of, um, of the siege of Jerusalem, the prophet Jeremiah offers these words from God that I think help us understand uh, the context here. He says, God says, your injury um, to the people, to the community, to the nation, your injury is incurable. 
your wound most severe. You have no defender for your case. There is no remedy for your sores and no healing for you. And a little further down, he says, but I will bring you health and I will heal you of your wounds. And then a little further down, I will certainly restore the fortunes of Jacob's tent of Israel and and show compassion on his dwellings. Every city will be rebuilt on its mound. Every citadel will stand on its proper site. Thanksgiving will come out of them, a sound of rejoicing. These first few verses we see in Psalm 85 are, are invoking that promise um, that, that God is going to return them to their land. He's going to help them be a people uh, that, that return and, 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 and find and, and, uh, and discover restoration and that they would, they would experience renewal. And that these promises are spoken in the midst of wreckage. That's important. This isn't like when they've arrived and when they've all, it's, it's all been sorted out. This is God speaking hope into a hopeless situation. So even if we feel out of sorts and disoriented and lost, there's hope for healing here, friends. Back to the oddly placed Selah in the midst of this. I wonder if it's an intentional rest here after, uh, after the, the, the idea of forgiveness comes. Maybe a, an intentional pointing to pause, to sit, to linger on this idea of forgiveness. And maybe they really needed to hear those words to linger here a little longer. And maybe we do too. But as we'll see in this psalm, forgiveness comes after confession and after repentance. So we shift from the past to the present. And in verses 4 to 7, we see this this present moment. There's a process of returning home and it's prayer language. There's desperation here in their prayer. God, how long? How long before we arrive, before we're truly home, before we feel your saving acts in our lives, before the guilt and the shame fades, before the disorientation fades away and we can make sense of things. How long before we experience the new life you promise? And there's this plead, this desperation, show us your faithful love, Lord. And again, this is covenantal language. It's asking God to be in good relationship again. And then we have verses 8 and 9. And these verses, these verses are so important and I don't want us to gloss over them at all. Because here what we have, what amounts to a declaration or a vow. It's commitment language. It's promise language. It's the kind of language you see in an apology. It's repentance language. We're sorry and we're not going to let it happen again. God, we're going to listen to you. We're going to trust you and follow your lead. And if we do this, it's going to go well for us. We know this because you're a good, good God who loves us deeply. I think about uh, a renewing of vows and how powerful that ceremony can be. My wife and I, uh, about five years into our marriage, we we renewed our vows in our backyard after a, a tough time. And we, we wrote new vows and we invited family and friends to just be in this backyard ceremony that was small and, and meek and humble and without a lot of the pizzazz of a, of a wedding. And it was just so significant for us to, to restate vows that would shape us moving forward. Uh, and sometimes 
couples need to do this. Sometimes uh, communities need to do this. That, that the vows that once were important and once held true just simply don't hold any longer. And we need to, to, to sit and think and write new vows. That Elevation has gone through a tough time. It's worth naming that. When we're longing to get home, wherever that is and whatever that looks like. And, but at some point along this journey... We're going to need to think through what this might look like for us, what renewing our vows might look like as a church community. Then we turn toward a future orientation. Verses 10 to 13 uh, start to, to tell us that, that in light of these vows, in light of this rekindled commitment and devotion to God, the psalm turns toward a new and future orientation. It's a turning away from the idolatry that severed the covenant relationship with God in the first place. It's a rejecting of the injustices that shattered the shalom they were to be about. It's a 180 away from any sense of toxicity that may its way into the fabric of their, of their community. And then it's turning toward a picture of, of a good, a Tove community. We've been reading uh, a church called Tove together as a learning community. We've spent a couple weeks together. We're through the first five chapters. Um, and and the first four were, you know, a diagnosis of, of toxicity, of what, uh, what it looks like when goodness is not present. And chapter five finally hit on what, uh, what a, a tov church, tov is the Hebrew word for good. Um, and it's littered all through scripture, hundreds and hundreds of uses of this word, tov, goodness. And so uh, when we think about this picture that we see, this future orientation in verses 10 to 13, it's a looking toward uh, this, in light of these vows, what would a Tove culture look like for them, for us? Here's what it, what it looks like. Here's, here's the picture they paint. This community will be anchored by truth and love. Where truth and love meet, we'll start to see a culture of goodness. Another piece of the puzzle is where righteousness and peace collide. Where they kiss, it says in other translations, where they embrace there's intimacy, there's closeness. These, these ideas are not far apart. Righteousness is this loaded biblical word and lots could be said about it, but it amounts to this idea of a right kind of living uh, of, that's connected to goodness and justice. Uh, people of righteousness choose the good over the evil. And that means people of the right kind of living are people of wisdom because they know how to choose goodness in, in any ethical situation. They're looking for what is the goodness here, the goodness path. And, then, and they're also people of the spirit uh, because they have been given the grace to cultivate goodness in their lives and in the lives of those around them. When we talk about peace, we're not limiting this to peace of mind or inner peace or zen. No, this peace is, is comprehensive. It's pointing toward harmony in relationships. It's peace with our neighbor. It's peace with our earth. It's peace in our systems and cultures that promotes justice and leads with mercy. Peace is not limited to peace of mind or peace in my heart. And if it is, then it's not the kind of peace that Jesus ushered in. So we see more movement here, and this time it's with righteousness and truth. We get this picture of heaven and earth colliding as truth springs up and this right kind of living comes down from heaven. When I see truth springing up 
for some reason the image for me is is a garden and it's it's a garden that springs up from the earth and it's an agrarian image of cultivation uh, from the roots on up truth needs to be cultivated in a culture verse 12 carries on this thought it says another beautiful uh, intersection of heaven and earth collide here where god will provide the goodness god will provide the goodness as we cultivate the land. There's, there's a participation here. It reminds me once again that this psalm is a psalm of covenant participation, of working with God to bring about shalom on earth as it is in heaven. And so we have this picture of truth and love and righteousness and peace coming together and forming something. The psalm is inviting us to this new orientation around these four ideas. Now, these four words, they they paint a picture for us. The first picture is of God's character. Uh, In in a church called Tov, we read this this past week. What every church needs is a model of goodness. In its pastors, its leaders, its people, it will come as no surprise that the perfect example of goodness is Jesus. We know God to be someone who is concerned with truth and love and righteousness and peace because these are descriptors of God's character. It's also a picture of that covenant of shalom, of comprehensive peace that includes justice and loves mercy and walks humbly with God, that picture we see in Micah. And we read this, uh, another quote from... um, a guy named uh, Jamie Arpin uh, Ricci in a book called Vulnerable Faith. It says, Shalom is what love looks like in the flesh. The embodiment of love in the context of a broken creation. Shalom is a hint at what was, what should be, and what will one day, what will one day be again. Where sin disintegrates and isolates, shalom brings together and restores. Where fear and shame throw up walls and put on masks, shalom breaks down barriers and frees us from the pretense of our false selves. This is a picture of shalom. It's exactly what we need here at Elevation. It's a picture of restoration, of transparency, of authenticity, of embodiment, of the embodied love that brings us together out of our isolation and fragmentation, of peace that works to rebuild something whole and beautiful out of something that was fractured and in ruins. And finally, it's a picture of a culture of goodness. And in the weeks to come, as we travel together as a learning community and as we as a broader community uh, continue in this series on Psalms and into the fall, our hope is that we're moving toward, we're orienting our lives and our culture around a culture of goodness. It's a picture we should hold up and look at and read regularly, Psalm 85, as a picture we should aspire to emulate. Let's pray. God, we see that you are good and goodness flows from you. And it is our... It is our desire, our heart's desire, that we be a people who strive to lead and live and walk in that goodness, to to let it be the air we breathe, the water we swim in, the culture 
that you pour down from heaven and we cultivate from the ground up in participation with you. God, we ask that you would keep this in our minds and in our hearts this week and in weeks to come. May it shape us. May it stir something inside of us. May it inspire us to a healthier and better future here together. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.